It's going to really help you follow along if you can get one of those in your hand. Just slip up your hand if you didn't get one. If you, everybody did, then that's great. There's a couple back here that need some if we can. CJ, too? Yeah. Well, man, it's good to be back. Last week, as a lot of y'all know, I was in Decatur, Alabama. I, w- I was Decatur Baptist Church had asked me to preach out there, and so I was preaching for them. And man, what a what a great group of like-minded brothers and sisters out there, man. I really had such a rich time with them, and uh, wow, it was yeah, it, it was a, it was a it was a great blessing. You guys will be seeing a lot of them, man. They have rallied around and supported the Wedstrong Marriage Conference like crazy, and so. You guys will be seeing a lot of those brothers and sisters here in just a, in just a few weeks. But man, while I was gone, I was, uh, man, I was thankful that, that CJ was able to bust the word up here for us. And so, you know, the, the ministry philosophy of this church is to train up the next generation of leaders. Otherwise, it's going to die with us. And, 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 and train them up, man. Train them up for the work of the ministry. And sometimes they'll stay here and minister, and other times we'll send them out, and, and they'll minister somewhere else. Praise the Lord for that. And I'm thankful for the opportunities that I was given when I was younger. And I was going, man, I feel like, I feel like this is what God has for me. You know, I feel like vocational ministry is what God has for me, but how can I even say that if I've never preached before in my life, right? And so it, it's kind of one of those things. And so I'm thankful for those opportunities I received. And, and, and I'm also excited about giving those opportunities as well. So, all right. So this morning, we, we're going to be continuing our verse-by-verse study of the book of Second Thessalonians. And, and what we've been seeing the, the last few weeks in this book is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who are the authors of this book, they're, they're commending the church of the Thessalonians. They're bragging on them. They're they're commending them, and, and they're commending them for the ways that they've grown in their faith and the way that they've grown in their charity and, and for the way that they've responded to persecutions and the way they responded to tribulations. They had responded to all of that adversity that this church was under. They had responded to that with patience and faith. And, and, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they were telling the Thessalonians that that God had righteously judged to allow that adversity to be in their lives for his eternal purposes, but that God will also righteously judge those who'd caused the Thessalonians that adversity when he returns at the second coming. They're, they're, They're reminding the Thessalonians that, listen, judgment day is coming for them, for those of you, for those that persecuted them, judgment day is coming. You don't have to avenge yourself. You can just rest, according to verse 7 of chapter 1. That's what you can do. You can let the Lord deal with all of those things in his timing, and we can just rest. And from there, what Paul, Silas, and Timothy begin to do is is they begin to lay out what that judgment and what that vengeance will look like when Jesus returns at the second coming. And they begin to go into some of the details surrounding this vengeance at the second coming here, and, and the vengeance and punishment that God is going to unleash on this planet at the second coming, man, it's a topic that we don't really talk about a whole lot in Christianity. Let, let's face it, it's a little unsettling, and so if I'm going to pick out my top three topics to preach about, it's probably not going to naturally make the cut, you know what I mean? You just don't naturally gravitate to it like, oh, yeah, today I want to talk about the wrath of God. Like, it's just, it's just, not, it's just not the thing, but, but it's included in the next verses that we're studying in our verse-by-verse study, and so it doesn't allow me to cherry-pick the things I enjoy preaching about the most. It requires me to preach what's next, and the vengeance and wrath and punishment of the Lord is what's next, and it's a topic that comes up often. In scripture and so God clearly desires that we understand this topic so let's go ahead and dive in and as we do I want us to read the verses that we'll be studying this morning the the last time I preached we left off in verse 7 of chapter 1 and and we covered some of verse 7 but we're going to pick up there this morning and come at it from a slightly different angle second Thessalonians chapter 1 beginning in, in verse 7 and it says and to you who are troubled rest with us 
When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And as we, as we study these verses this morning, first I want us to look at the specifics of the vengeance of God at the second coming. The specifics of the vengeance of God at the second coming. God lays out some of the, the details for us in the midst of these verses I just read that, that we need to get our heads wrapped around. So, so let's look at, first of all, as we look at some of these details, let's look at letter A, let's look at when it will be. Let's look at when it will be. We, we need to know when the events in the verses I just read will be. That's something important for us to know. If we don't get that right, man, we're going to get we're going to get tangled up in our eschatology. We, we, it's going to get us tangled up in our, our belief of how things are going to shake out right. in the end times. And, and so it's important for us to understand the difference between what I just read and the difference between what we studied a few months ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Do you remember that? Right. Because at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4, what we read and what we just read are two different things. We, what we just read describes the second coming, and what we previously studied in 1 Thessalonians 4 describes the rapture. You, you see, the event we're waiting for and the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture. The rapture is when believers in Jesus Christ are going to be catapulted off of this planet and we meet Jesus in the sky. Do you remember that? 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 it says that for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which were, are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the believers in Jesus Christ, those that have already passed away, they're going to rise first. And then right after that, believers in Jesus Christ that are still alive on this planet, we're all going to meet Jesus in the air. Right. You see that? So believers that are still alive at the rapture, we're going to meet Jesus in the sky. And I say we because I'm, I'm kind of hoping I'll, I'll be in that group. <laughs> but, but I believe that we are so close that there's going to be people in this room that are alive to live that. I really do. And the way it shakes out is, is that we're going to meet Jesus in the sky at the, at the rapture, and then that's going to usher in the seven-year tribulation period. And, and what we're seeing from our passage in 2 Thessalonians this morning is the culmination of the tribulation period, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ on this planet. 2 Corinthians 1, 7 through 8, it, it describes for us Jesus being revealed from heaven with his angels in flaming fire. He's taking vengeance on those that don't believe. This is in stark contrast to believers in Jesus Christ meeting him in the sky. These are two different events, and we need to understand the difference so we're not confused as to when this will be. 1 Thessalonians 4 describes the rapture when believers meet Jesus in the air. And 2 Thessalonians 1 describes the second coming when Jesus comes to earth to take vengeance on those that don't believe. And we've got to understand the distinction between those two events or we could find ourselves in a lot of different places. And I won't elaborate on all the places it, it takes you to and, and exactly why it takes you there. But it leads you to places like believing you're going to go through and live the tribulation period. It, it leads you to places to where you could find yourself not believing in the imminent return of Christ. Those are just a couple of the places that people oftentimes end up when they don't understand the order of events in the end times. And so it's important to note that when God unleashes his vengeance at the second coming, those that believe will already be raptured off of this planet seven years prior to that. We won't still be here on earth. We won't be on the receiving end of that, praise God. In fact, we'll be with Jesus while it's going on, because he's bringing us back with him. <laughs> so we will experience it, but we won't be on the receiving end of God's vengeance and punishment. 
So, so that's when the second coming will be, when the vengeance of God is unleashed on this planet. But next, let's look at what it will be. It's God's vengeance, but, but what will it be more specifically? Now, now, again, keep in mind the second coming is the culmination of the seven-year tribulation period. In the last three and a half years of the tribulation period leading up to the second coming, it's described in Matthew 24, 21, and 22 as a time where Jesus said, there's never been anything like it before, and there'll never be anything like it after. There's never been anything like it. There's been three and a half years of tribulation that's beyond anything that the world has ever seen, and then Jesus comes back, and according to 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he's coming in flaming fire. He's bringing vengeance and punishment on top of what has already been. And, and there are other places in the Bible, man, that sheds even more light on the, on the details describing just how unbelievable and horrible the second coming is going to be for those that don't believe. Revelation 6, 15 through 17 is one of those places. And listen to the way it describes what we know as the second coming. It, it says, and, and, and I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? And time won't allow us to go into to all of the details of what's going to go on when God unleashes his wrath and his vengeance. But I think these verses should really help us begin to get an idea. Listen, this will be such a horrifying time for unbelievers that, that Hollywood and all of their special effects couldn't quite cause us to grasp all that's going on here. God is unleashing his righteous judgment on the earth. And when he does... There's nobody that's going to be able to stand to it. That's the answer to the question at the end of verse 17. Who can stand before his wrath? That's an easy answer. Nobody. You see, two weeks ago when I, I preached last, we talked about how when persecutions and tribulations, when they, when they come our way or, or when the evil and the injustices that are going on in the world they're going on in the world and we see these people literally getting away with murder and, and, and we see people get seemingly get away with rape and molestation and, the, and the, just the sickest and most heinous acts that can possibly be imagined. I, I said we can't help but sit there and, and wonder and want to ask God, what, what in the world is going on? Are you seeing what I'm seeing, God? God, what are you doing? But you know what he's been doing? He has been doing something. He's been storing up his wrath. He hasn't missed a thing. In Revelation 15 and 16, John takes us through the tribulation and the second coming for the fourth time in the book. And in this time, he does it through the pouring of the seven vials. Revelation 16:1 says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Do you see that? God has vials of wrath that he's waiting to pour out. You picture, picture it like this. While we've been watching the atrocities in the world go on and wondering what in the world God is, is doing and wondering why he hasn't done something yet about all these horrible things, Revelation 16 tells us, that what he's been doing is storing his wrath in seven vials all along the way. For 6,000 years of human history, God, who is full of grace and mercy and patience and kindness and forgiveness, that same God has been storing up his wrath. Because while he, present tense, continues to show the world an abundant amount of grace and mercy and patience and kindness and forgiveness, 
there are a whole lot of atrocities that are going on on this planet. And God's name is being blasphemed every day. And there's coming a day where God's going to say, enough. And God's going to say enough through the pouring of the, of the seven vials of wrath that have been stored up that are going to be poured out during the tribulation period and the second coming. God is full of long suffering, y'all, but there's coming a day where that's it. I'm done. It's enough. Second Peter 3, 9 and 10 describes this perfectly. It, it, it says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. But is long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And listen, we all love this verse, and I especially love this verse. It, it, it conveys God's incredible love for us, and it conveys his long-suffering for us. But have you ever considered the first part of the verse? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. You know what he's saying? The promise Peter is referring to is the promise of judgment and vengeance. And he says, some men believe that God is slacking on his promise to make things right. <laughs> and Peter says, God's not slacking on his judgment. It's just that he's long-suffering and he's not willing that any should perish and that all should come to repentance. And so going into verse 10, he's essentially saying, God isn't slacking in regarding his promise to judge and take vengeance. God is just giving people time to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. In other words, don't you worry. God isn't slacking. He's going to come as a thief in the night and his wrath will be poured out on this planet. It's just that for the moment, he's still being long-suffering with us in hopes that we'll come to repentance. He's coming back, and when he does, it's not going to be anything like anything we've ever seen. All right, so, so we, we've seen the, the when and, and the what. Now, now let's look at the, the who. Who it will be directed toward. Who God's vengeance will, will be directed towards in in second thessalonians chapter one and verse eight that we've been reading again it says in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not god and that obey not the gospel of our lord jesus christ god's vengeance and wrath it's it's going to be directed towards those people that don't know god and that don't obey the gospel of our lord jesus christ and, and i want you to notice from this verse, I want you to notice what it is that ultimately causes the vengeance of God to come upon someone. His vengeance comes upon those that don't obey the gospel. Yes, of course, sin is a factor in this thing. But do you realize that ultimately the vengeance of God comes upon someone because they didn't obey the gospel and respond to it in faith? That, that's what brings the vengeance of God on someone and ultimately sends them to hell. Look at John 16 and verse 8 with me. In this verse, Jesus, he's, he's talking. He's talking about the fact that, that after he ascends back to heaven, he's going to send us the Holy Spirit, and he says, and when he is come, he being the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Verse 9, of sin... And why does he have to reprove the world of sin? Or what is ultimately the sin that unbelievers face God's vengeance and go to hell for? Here it is. Of sin because they believe not on me. Realize that ultimately no one faces God's vengeance and wrath and goes to hell just for sinning. They go to hell for rejecting the cure to sin. No one dies because they're sick. They died because they didn't get well. And everyone on the planet has the opportunity to accept God's free gift of salvation by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, the one who paid for our sins by his death on the cross so that we don't have to stay sick and we can get well. Refusing to get well is what sends unbelievers to hell. And listen, 
God has provided everything imaginable for us to get well. Refusing to get well is the problem. God has offered the cure to everyone. We've already seen he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it's because he's not willing that any should perish that what he does is, is he gives everyone that has ever lived, he gives them a measure of life. Corey was talking some about this Wednesday night. John chapter 1 and verse 9, talking about Jesus. It says that, that he was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Every man. The true, capital L, light gives light to every man that comes into the world. What God does is, is he gives every man a measure of the light of the gospel and the light of who he is. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 describes the light that God shines exactly like that. It says, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, and here it is, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. God is, is giving a measure of light to every man, and Satan is actively working to blind people's minds to that. So Satan is working to blind people because God is shining the light of the glorious gospel to them, and it's through the gospel that we can know who Jesus is. And shining his light, and, and Satan working to blind the eyes of those that don't believe and, and, and to block that light is, is what's actually going on. Satan is trying to limit the light God shines, but despite that, God is still finding a way to light every man that comes into the world. So how does that work with these people that, by all accounts, live in locations where the gospel has never made it? Well, I know this much. The Bible says God has even given them life. Now, now there are different ways God can do that, and, and it's up to his discretion, but they are getting a measure of light somehow, some way. The Bible teaches us that one of the ways that God actually gives a measure of light is through creation. Romans chapter 1 teaches us this, and, and, and it's even in the context of the wrath of God. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. And check this out. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You see that? God's wrath is justifiably coming to those that don't believe because they held the truth in unrighteousness or they received the truth and they rejected it. And one of the ways that God is revealing himself to the world is through creation. Verse 20 says, he can clearly understand the spiritual by looking at the physical in creation, so much so that we're without excuse. That's one of the ways God gives light to every man that comes into the world through creation. I mean, have you looked outside lately? How can you not look at the world and the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky and the ocean and the complexity of the human body and not come to the fact that there's a creator out there somewhere? <laughs> It's like, the, it's like the classic example of, of, of the piano over here, right? There, and there's a million other things that we could use as an example, but, but take this piano that's hiding behind that screen. How insane and how irrational would it be to come to the conclusion that this intricate instrument somehow arrived here arbitrarily? How could we possibly come to any other conclusion other than looking at that piano and say, got to be somebody that makes pianos out there somewhere. And you see, this is one of the reasons that unbelievers are without excuse. God gives a measure of light to every man, and one of the things he uses to shine that light is creation. And, and, and depending on how you respond to the measure of light that you're, give, that you're given, is connected to how much more light you get oftentimes. God's shining light to people 
but they don't want it. God wanted them because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, but they don't want him. And so we need to understand that who God is going to punish and dole out vengeance towards are those that don't obey the gospel. It's those that receive light, but they don't want light, and the people that were offered the cure, but they don't accept the cure. So that's the who. And, and if you think about it, that's actually the, the why as well. But, but now let, let's look at something else that, that our passage in 2 Thessalonians teaches us, and it's, and it's letter D, how long it will be. How, how long, what's the duration of this vengeance? How long will God's vengeance last? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9 says the, the unbelievers that God is, is bringing his vengeance and punishment upon, it says who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That, that's how long, y'all. That's the duration, everlasting destruction. This is unquestionably one of the most sobering and unsettling truths in the entire Bible, as far as I'm concerned. And because it's so unsettling, that may be the reason that so many people that claim to be believers have tried to deny the reality of it. There are plenty of people that reject the notion that a loving God would damn someone to eternal torment. But listen, the reality of the fact that there is a place called hell where there will be everlasting destruction and torment is a clear biblical teaching that there is just no getting around, no matter how unsettling that it is. At the Sermon of the Mount, at the end of Matthew 5:22, Jesus references the danger of hellfire. In Matthew 13:42, Jesus references a furnace of fire that includes wailing and gnashing of teeth. At the end of Matthew 18:8, Jesus references everlasting fire, not just fire, but how long or what is the duration? It's everlasting. Revelation 14.11 talks about the smoke of their torment forever and ever and having no rest day and night. In Luke 16.24, the, the rich man is recorded as speaking from hell, and here's what he asked for in verse 23. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and he seeth Abraham afar off, and, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now Abraham's bosom is where saints were located prior to Jesus finished work on the cross and and though there was a gulf in between hell and Abraham's bosom it was, there was there was somehow at least temporary visibility and, and the ability to communicate and here's what the rich man said in verse 24 and he cried and said father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame does that sound figurative to any of y'all? In the last verse of Isaiah, Isaiah says, in Isaiah 66, 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Listen, the torment of an eternity in the in in the lake of in hell and in the lake of fire, it's all over Scripture, man. It, this is the reality of the situation, and I don't have the words to describe to you the severity of what we've just described. How do you begin to explain something so that there's such excruciating torment, and not only excruciating torment, but excruciating torment that lasts forever? How do you even begin to describe such a horrible thing? That's what the vengeance and punishment of God entails. And God thought it was important that he'd include those details in his book so that we'd understand the reality and the severity of what it is that we're dealing with. So that's how long the vengeance and wrath of God is going to last. And man, I get it. It's unsettling. It's tough to listen to. It's tough to imagine. It's tough to preach on. It's tough to get our heads around. And there's something within us that has a hard time accepting it. And because of that, I want to shed some light on why it has to be this way. There, there are reasons that it had to be this way 
And I believe that's going to be helpful to, for us to, to get our heads around, around that. So, so next, let's look at the, the attributes of God that necessitate vengeance at the second coming. The attributes of God that necessitate vengeance at the second coming. There's no doubt that, that vengeance and wrath, man, it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow, but, but maybe it's because we don't truly understand who God is. And the first attribute of God that I want us to see that will help us understand the vengeance of God is that God is holy. Letter A, he is, he is holy. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 teaches us that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And we need to understand it, it, it's not just saying that he possesses light. It, it, it's not just saying that he, that he shines light. He's the embodiment of light in every way. He is light. And, and this, this thing of, of God being light, it, it manifests itself in different ways. We've already seen this morning from John 1, 9 that God lighteth every man that cometh into the world. In other words, he, he shines that certain measure of light uh, of who he is to everyone so that they have the opportunity to know him. And check this out. In the future, God will quite literally be the light. <laughs> you see, in eternity, God, when God creates a, a new heaven and a new earth, it, he will literally be the light. <laughs> Revelation 21, 23 teaches us that. It says the city, the new heaven and new earth, it had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. So when Jesus says he's the light of the world, man, he's telling you something about the present, but he's also pointing to something in the future. And so he's the light of the world, and, he's, and that light manifests itself in a variety of ways because he is quite literally the embodiment of light. But what I want to make sure that you understand is, is that this thing of light that he is the embodiment of is connected directly to God's holiness. Yes, Jesus will physically be the light of the world in the future, and the gospel is the light of Jesus that shines so that people can know who he is, but that light is connected to his holiness. Did you notice that in 1 John 1, 5? It says God is light, and in him is no darkness. There's no sin and in case someone ever read this and didn't understand no darkness, the Bible says, in him is no darkness at all. <laughs> no darkness at all. God is light. God is holy. God, it, it is his essential nature. And what you need to understand is that if God ever ceased to be holy, he would cease to be God. But more than that, not only would he, he cease to be God, he would cease to exist. Why? Because he is light. He is holiness. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing that is unholy about him. In him is no darkness. And he wants to make sure that we get that God is just not relatively holy. God is just not mostly holy. He's not just predominantly holy. He's completely holy. He's absolutely holy. He's holy, holy, holy. He is light. That's what it means when it says he is light. And so we have to understand that because God is light, Hebrews 12, 29 teaches us that God is a consuming fire. He's so holy that he's a consuming fire. Do you understand that about him this morning? He's so holy that if a sinner was to come into his presence without the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to their life, his holiness and fire would literally consume them. And you see, it's the infinite holiness of God that makes it to where he cannot coexist with sin. In him is no darkness at all, so for him to be accepting of sin would be inconsistent with his holiness. It's impossible for God to be infinitely holy and turn a blind eye to sin. And so when we understand that holiness is a part of God's essential nature, we get a better understanding of the vengeance and the wrath of God. And just as a side note, 
for those of us believers that think it's kind of cool to play around with sin and dabble in it and flirt with it and in some case just full-fledged partake in it, for those like that, it's a real testament to your relationship with God. Because if you know God in an intimate way, you know that he is holy beyond what the mind can conceive and you'd stop playing around with all that junk. But when you play around with it, you can tell they don't really know God in a deep way or they'd understand he ain't going to play with this. Why would we want to behave ourselves like those that have the wrath of God waiting for them when we have the love of God waiting for us? I don't get it. But, but again, the, the main thing I'm wanting us to see here is that God is holy and he can't be holy and coexist with, with sin. And, and he can't be holy and let sin run around unchecked indefinitely. His holiness demands punishment. It demands vengeance. And, and if we understand this attribute of God and, and understand who God really is, we'll begin to understand why vengeance and punishment is necessary. It's a necessity. And, and, and there's another attribute of God that we also need to understand when it comes to this thing of his vengeance and wrath. And that's letter B, that, that he is love. He is love. I know that doesn't make sense yet, but, but you'll see. The, the Bible teaches us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, it teaches us very sig- something very significant about God. And it's something that's so foundational to our understanding of God. And, it, and it's similar to what we just saw with God being light. What we learn is that God doesn't just love. <laughs> now, man, wouldn't it be just a, it, I mean, I, I think I'd be almost content with that. Wouldn't it be the coolest thing in the world if the God of the universe just loved us? I mean, what a, what a thought that is, but, but it's better than that, and, it, and it's even deeper than that. The Bible teaches us that God doesn't just love, but that God is love. <laughs> it, love defines who God is. Love is his essence. Love is his nature. It's who God is. And, and God wanted to make manifest that love. He, he wanted the world to be able to see it. He wanted the world to be able to get it. And so that we would get it, God himself became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came to this planet to manifest his love, to allow us and all the world to be able to perceive the fact that God is love. And so what God did when he was preparing a body for his son was he made him the love of God manifest among men in an earthly body. That's how he that's how he did it. In first John three sixteen, it says hereby or by this perceive we or, or this is how we get it. This is how we understand it. This is how we perceive the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. That's how we grasp. That's how we grasp it. That, that's how we grasp his love, that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, and, and he laid down his life for us. 1 John 4, 9 says it like this. In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. God wanted his love to be made manifest to us. He wanted us to see it, and so he sent his son. Romans 5, 8 says it like this. But God commendeth his love toward us. He, he proved it. He showed it to us. How? In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 4.10, it says this. Herein is love. Okay, if you want to get it, if you want to understand this whole concept of God's love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And here it is again. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he, he put his love on display by willingly offering to us his son to take our place on that cross and to pay for his sins. Listen, he doesn't just love. He is love. Do you realize that God loved you so much that he would have died for you even if you were the only one on the planet that needed salvation? He loves you that much. I don't think we grasp that sometimes. And you say, what does all of this love talk have to do with God's vengeance? That's a great question. How does this help me understand God's vengeance? It has to do with God's vengeance 
because God displayed his love to all of mankind and demonstrated it through the greatest display of love in all of history and was brutally beaten on the cross, and people rejected that. On one hand, he's he's so holy that he that he hates sin so much, and then on the other hand, he is he is love and he loves us so much. So because he hates sin and he can't coexist with it, and because he loves us, he died on our behalf, making atonement for the sin that he hates and providing a path for the human race that he loves so much to have a relationship with him. And in order to accomplish that, his son was brutally beaten on our behalf to pay for our sin, and he's given every man a measure of light, and they rejected it. They rejected the perfect one that died for them. And to reject that absolutely unbelievable offer is to willingly choose the wrath of God on your life. John 3, 36 says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. If you refuse to believe, the wrath of God abides on you. And I know that's not cool preaching and popular preaching. I get it, man. It's just all over the Bible, and I don't know what else to do with it. If you refuse to believe, the wrath of God abides on you. Our passage in 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says, God's vengeance is coming upon those that won't obey the gospel. Because you see, rejecting God's sacrifice and, and love, listen, it's the greatest offense that anyone can commit. Do you realize that? Because no matter what someone has done in their life, and no matter what anyone in this room has done in their life, and no matter how horrific and no matter how heinous the act was, there is nothing that is stronger than the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus has the power to cleanse us from all sin and every offense, but there is one offense that there is no coming back from, and it's the offense of reaching the end of your life and having rejected the Son of God that died for you. That's the only sin that can't be forgiven. To reject the only pardon is unpardonable. God can save us from every sin, but not if we reject the cure. There's not a, there's, there's not a sickness God can't cure. But we've got to accept the cure. And whose fault is it if something happens to someone who has been offered the cure but has willingly rejected it? Every other sin and offense can be covered by the blood of the Lamb, but the ultimate offense is the rejection of the blood of the Lamb that He has freely offered to every person. And so when God makes His offer and they reject His offer, God is giving them exactly what they want and exactly what they've chosen. God is love, and rejecting His love is the worst thing you could possibly do. So we've seen that that two parts of God's essential nature is that he is holy, and we've seen that, that he is love. But there's something else about Jesus that I think is important for us to understand if we're going to understand just who he is so we can understand his vengeance. And that is that, that he is eternal. He is eternal. A lot of people can't understand why his vengeance and his punishment has to be so severe and why it has to be eternal. And so one of the things we need to understand is that God is eternal. Psalm 90 and verse 2, it's one of the many places where we see God's eternal nature described in the Bible. And it's describing God here as being from everlasting to everlasting. He's eternal. In the verses we're studying this morning, like we saw earlier, they describe God's vengeance and punishment as being eternal as well. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it says, who who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. God exists from everlasting to everlasting, and his punishment for not obeying the gospel is everlasting destruction from God's presence and the glory of his power. You see, God's eternal, and so the offense, or so the punishment for offending him is eternal. Our own justice system helps us understand this, I think, a little bit better. For example, if someone commits murder, 
The criminal oftentimes spends the rest of their mortal life in a quarantine that we call prison. So the one that committed the crime committed a crime so severe that they cost their victim the rest of their mortal life. And so the prison sentence, so the quarantine for the one that committed the crime, lasts for the rest of their mortal life. The punishment fits the crime. The crime had ramifications that cost someone the rest of their mortal life, and so the punishment cost the criminal the rest of their mortal life. And so it is in the case of a crime against a spiritual, eternal being. The one that committed the crime is placed in a quarantine for the rest of their spiritual existence. And their spiritual existence is eternal, which means they must spend eternity in the eternal quarantine called hell. So crimes against a mortal human being require punishment that lasts the rest of the criminal's mortal life, and crimes against an eternal spiritual being require punishment that lasts the rest of the sinner's spiritual life, which is eternity. And that's why the punishment in hell has to be eternal. And listen, maybe sometimes the, the vengeance and, and the wrath of, of God is, is so hard to understand because we really don't understand God. So when the common question is asked, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? It could just as easily be asked, how could a holy God send anyone to heaven? No one ever asks that question. No one ever asks how a holy God could send anyone to heaven. It's because we focus on his love, and well, we should, but we do that without an understanding of his holiness and his eternity, his, his eternality. Oh, oh, yeah, he's most definitely love, but he's also light and he's holy and he's eternal. But there's something else that, that God is showing us in, in our passage in 2 Thessalonians this morning that, that's extremely important that we take note of, and it's, and it's number three on your study sheet, the other side of the coin of God's vengeance at the second coming. The other side of the coin of God's vengeance at the second coming. Jesus came the first time to to pay for sin. He's coming the second time to judge sin. But, but, but there's also another reason he's coming according to 2 Thessalonians 1.10. So let's look at, at first, letter A, let's look at our privilege. Our, our privilege that we have. In, in verse 9, we see, you see Jesus is coming to punish those that don't believe. But in verse 10, it also says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Yeah, he's coming in vengeance and he's coming to punish those that refuse to believe. But he's also coming to be glorified and admired by those of us that do believe. What an incredible privilege we have to be on that side of things. What a privilege to think that, my goodness, if it wasn't for the grace of God, we could easily be on the receiving end of God's vengeance, but instead we'll be glorifying and admiring the one that saved us and that bought us with his blood. And we'll be in awe of the, the incredible Savior and the grace and the mercy of the Savior. What a privilege. But listen, in the midst of describing that incredible privilege in verse 10, God also lays out for us an incredible responsibility. Let it be our responsibility. Did, did you notice that reminder there in the verse? In verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they remind the Thessalonians that the reason that they'll be glorifying and admiring Jesus at his second coming is because, as it says in parentheses, because our testimony among you was believed. You see, we... We don't know what would have happened to the Thessalonians had it not been for the ministry of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, do we? We don't know. Had the Thessalonians died prior to Paul, Silas, and Timothy's arrival, then they would all be on the receiving end of the vengeance of God. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they proactively and intentionally went to Thessalonica for the purpose of giving the gospel to the Thessalonian people. And, and they received that message, and they believed it, and they called on the name of Jesus to save them. And so what I'm pleading with you to consider this morning is, is that in light of the reality and in light of the gravity of eternity and God's vengeance and his punishment and in light of the sacrifice and suffering of Jesus on the cross, what are you going to do with that? Listen, the Bible talks a lot about 
the second coming and the end times and the events of the last days. And it is never to scratch an intellectual itch. It's never to scratch the itch of, ooh, that's interesting how that's all going to shake out in the last time. And I wonder exactly, you know, all, all of these things. Hey, that's interesting stuff. No, when God lays that out for us, it's connected to the urgency of reaching people with the message of the gospel before it's too late. God lays out these horrific details for us of the righteous judgment of God to put before us the responsibility that we have to share the message of the gospel with as many people as we possibly can. The second time Jesus comes, he's coming to bring vengeance and punishment, and that vengeance and punishment belongs to God alone, but what he's called us to do till then is he's called us to behave like he did at his first coming. Because when Jesus came the first time and, and he ascended back up, to the Father in heaven, he said, I'm going to the Father. And now you guys are the one that's going to take the message to the rest of the world. We're to do what 2 Timothy 4, 5 calls the work of an evangelist. We're to, we're to do what 2 Corinthians 5, 20 calls being an ambassador for Christ. An, an ambassador is someone who's standing in on someone else's behalf. It, that's what we've been called to. And listen, y'all, as we're standing here, my goodness, the stakes could not be any higher than they are. So in light of that, I'm asking you, who can you intentionally get with this week that needs the message of the gospel for the purpose of sharing that message with them? Who can you think of in your mind right now that you know that does not believe that you can reach out to and love and purposefully and intentionally and proactively get together with for the hope and prayer of shining the light of the gospel to them before it's too late? Would you think about that and consider that as we pray? Father, we, we love you, and, and God, we thank you for your love. I pray, God, that, that through this message this morning, we would better understand you, better understand what we've been called to. God, your wrath is, man, it's a, it, is a, it's a tough, it is tough to stomach, Father. But you are infinitely holy, and you have provided us everything we could possibly imagine. You've provided us a way to you. You've shined your light to us. And God, now you've tasked us with the responsibility of sharing that to those that don't believe before it's too late. I pray, God, that we would have the urgency that we need to. This is the only thing that matters in life. There's eternal ramifications, God. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.